1: helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E Julian Assange remains in British custody. Hearings on the U.S. extradition warrant are expected to begin next month. The U.S. indictment revives discussion of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act under which Mr. Assange was charged. Some notes on why Ecuador decided to revoke the WikiLeaks leader's asylum. Notes on Dragon Blood. Eric O'Neill joins us. He's author of the book Grey Day, My Undercover Mission to Expose America's First Cyber Spy. And we're at the end of tax season, but the dark web markets are still hawking 1040s and W2s. From the Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Friday, April 12, 2019. As Julian Assange, the face of WikiLeaks, begins his efforts to resist extradition to the US, Observers comment on the charge he faces, which is essentially conspiracy to hack into a non-compliant computer in violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Mr. Assange, the U.S. maintains, offered to help the then-U.S. Army Specialist Manning crack passwords to gain access to classified files. He's not charged with espionage or with possession of classified material. Those sympathetic to Mr. Assange, like Edward Snowden, WikiLeaks itself, and Britain's shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott, see the indictment as a way of railroading him, especially since the offer to help then-Specialist Manning break into government systems seems more an act of stumblebum hubris than the sinister act of a criminal mastermind. It apparently didn't succeed, and it apparently wasn't repeated, but it did happen. As the Washington Post notes, many security experts have long thought the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act outmoded and overly broad, but the prosecution would not appear taken by itself to represent a threat to journalists' First Amendment rights. Besides, as former NSA Associate General Counsel April Doss told courts, that kind of hacking isn't a journalistic best practice. Many agree with her and see conspiring to break into a computer in search of files as analogous to conspiring to break into someone's house in search of files. It's early, of course, to guess how Mr. Assange's legal affairs will play out. He will be sentenced for yesterday's bail-jumping conviction at some time in the future, and his extradition hearing is set to begin next month. A bit more has emerged on why Ecuador decided to revoke Mr. Assange's asylum. That asylum was granted seven years ago by Ecuador's previous government— regarded as having been significantly farther left than the current administration. The present government has been unhappy with Mr. Assange's continuing involvement with WikiLeaks from within the confines of their London embassy. They also say that he had become an increasingly difficult guest. More seriously and controversially, Ecuador's government says their guest was engaged with others, online and connected to Russian intelligence services, in attempts to destabilize that government. Mr. Assange and WikiLeaks have long been regarded as Russia-friendly. That's, of course, no crime, but the optics, as they say, aren't good. The U.S. prosecution, if it occurs, will be particularly interesting in three ways. First, the government is widely expected to be interested in adding more charges to the one already in the indictment. Speculation to this effect is particularly common in the British press. The Times of London writes about Mr. Assange facing decades in prison... They know that a single count of violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act would carry a sentence of at most five years, but they expect other counts to be added. Whether the federal prosecutors do so remains to be seen. Second, how the government handles this prosecution without running afoul of the First Amendment will be worth watching. So far, they seem to be working hard to avoid this. Third, the political implications of whatever may come out in court are unpredictable and probably at this stage unknowable but there's much cross-cutting speculation and mutually incompatible hope circulating at the moment. University researchers Matty Van Hoof of New York University Abu Dhabi and Eyal Ronan of Tel Aviv University and KU Leuven report that secure Wi-Fi protocol WPA3's SAE handshake may be susceptible to the same kind of exploitation as its predecessor WPA2 was. One of the problems lies in the transition mode designed to ensure backward compatibility with the older protocol. They're calling the five vulnerabilities Dragonblood because they're related to the protocol's Dragonfly handshake. We heard from WatchGuard Technologies' Ryan Orsi, the security company's director of product management. He would like people to understand that WPA3 represents an improvement over WPA2, but that it's not proof against a number of known Wi-Fi threats. Dragonblood vulnerabilities mostly affect those devices that were released with WPA3 support and, he says, that manufacturers are currently getting patches out for those. How would attackers use Dragonblood? Orsi says the most probable approach would be through an evil twin access point or a rogue access point. The terms perhaps require some clarification. An evil twin access point is one established by an attacker to give the appearance of legitimate Wi-Fi access but that in fact is there for eavesdropping and other illegitimate purposes. A rogue access point is one established within a network, but unofficially, without the administrator's permission. Rogues may be well-intentioned but misguided forms of shadow IT. Carbon Black continues to track the maturation of the dark web's black market in tax fraud and identity theft tools. They're increasingly commodified and cheaper than ever. Here are some of the things they've found – Hoods are trading W-2s and 1040 forms. These are, we note for our international audience, U.S. reports of wages and tax filing forms, respectively. And they're also offering what Carbon Black calls how-to guides for illicitly cashing out tax returns, a kind of tax fraud for dummies. W-2s and 1040s fetch between half a buck and a dollar. Other info an identity thief or other bunco artists might find interesting, things like names, social security numbers, and birth dates. These things can be had for between $0.19 and $62. The study is dispiriting, to say the least. Another form of petty crime with low barriers to entry afflicts the law-abiding who simply wish to leave peaceful, quiet lives. As Carbon Black notes, Listings include previous year's W-2 forms, Form 1040 information and Social Security numbers, among other information, indicating that cybercriminals are not just looking to make a quick buck, but also trying to steal a person's financial future. And this reminds us, Monday is April 15th, tax day in these United States. And as they say in Caucus, forget about it. we better get those returns in the mail, right? And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's great to have you back. Uh, Interesting story came by from Wired. This is, should cops use family tree forensics? Maryland, which is our home state, isn't so sure. What's going on here?
0: Yeah, so there's a bill currently pending in front of the House of Delegates in Annapolis here in Maryland. uh, And that bill would prohibit law enforcement from searching DNA databases collected through some of these public websites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. People voluntarily will submit their DNA to these websites. They are aware that this information is going into a public database, even if they're not aware that most law enforcement agencies across the country, in fact, has access to these databases to match them up against the DNA of suspected criminals. And we've seen some very high-profile cold cases that have been resolved based on data submitted through Ancestry.com and 23andMe. People innocently trying to track their genealogy end up uh, causing the the downfall of some of their distant relatives. There's this uh, case in California, uh, I think like a 40-year cold case, where they were able to identify the killer because his DNA was linked to someone who was doing genealogy research through 23andMe. Hmm. What this bill in Maryland would do would be to prohibit our law enforcement agencies from searching those databases in an effort to solve unsolved crimes. And why?
1: What's the concern?
0: It's born out of privacy and civil liberties concerns. Individuals who are submitting the data are doing so with the understanding that they are doing genealogical research and not that they're potentially uh, subjecting their distant relatives to arrest. And it is a suspicionless search uh, for those who have been arrested. The government didn't get any kind of warrant to uh, conduct a search of the suspect's DNA, they were able to obtain it without any sort of judicial authorization. Now, mm. the caveat to that is the only reason a suspect's DNA is in the system is because the DNA was obtained at the scene of the crime or in connection with the crime. For the purpose of, of making arrests, obviously, if somebody's DNA is in the scene of the crime or is uh, part of a criminal investigation, they're going to be suspects in the crime. That certainly would be probable cause To justify uh, an arrest. But the information that would have led to that arrest is obtained without any sort of judicial authorization, which in reality can be the source of uh, law enforcement abuse if it's not checked by um, a warrant issued by a a neutral magistrate. It has been legal in Maryland since 2008 to conduct these searches of these databases. Um, Delegate Sidnar, who uh, is a Baltimore delegate, son of, of law enforcement, so somebody has a personal connection to the law enforcement community, is also a civil liberties advocate. And uh, he has proposed this piece of legislation to take that tool away from law enforcement, and that would force law enforcement to, to use different tactics to try and, and solve some of these cold cases. Um, really, it's a values judgment. Are we more interested in having a database of DNA submitted voluntarily uh, and DNA that has been made public to help solve crimes? Or is it more important to not have warrantless access to this this bevy of information, information that was not volunteered by uh, the person who's going to be facing the consequences? So you can see analogs in the physical world, and that's probably where courts get guidance from these issues. Hmm. Um, there's a famous case of, uh, who was the, the big mafia guy who was arrested for tax fraud?
1: Oh, um, Al Capone?
0: Al Capone. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Al Capone who um, they were wiretapping somebody that he was talking to, but not wiretapping him. But he incriminated himself in that conversation. Hmm. Uh, And as a result, he was put under arrest And the Supreme Court held that. You don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy when you are communicating with other people, even if you're the person who is not subject of surveillance. By putting information out there publicly, it's in the public domain, and it's accessible to law enforcement. You know, I think that has some close analogs to uh, people submitting DNA, having it be public, having it be something that law enforcement has access to.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. Uh, changing times, for sure. Absolutely. All right. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security, Eric O'Neill is a former FBI counterintelligence and counterterrorism operative and founder of the Georgetown Group, a security and investigative firm, as well as national security strategist for Carbon Black. In his book, Gray Day, My Undercover Mission to Expose America's First Cyber Spy, Eric O'Neill shares the fascinating and sometimes harrowing tale of his experience being assigned to help expose Robert Hansen, the FBI's most notorious mole. In 2001, Hansen pleaded guilty to multiple charges of espionage for sharing classified information with the Soviet Union and Russia over the course of over two decades. My full interview with Eric O'Neill will be released this Sunday. Here's a preview of our conversation.
2: I wasn't prepared to investigate a spy in this manner. You know, during my entire time in the FBI all those years, I was what's called an FBI ghost. So I was an undercover operative. I pursued terrorists and spies, primarily around the Washington DC area. And most of my role was to surveil and investigate targets that we suspected or knew were spies or terrorists. And suddenly my supervisor shows up from my house unannounced. It's the first chapter of the book and asks me if I know a guy named Robert Hanson. And I say, no, I hadn't investigated him. And he said, good, because we want you to go undercover and investigate him. And I said, why did you have to come out here on a Sunday to tell me that? That's what I do. And he said, we don't want you to ghost him, Eric. We want you to work undercover in an office we're going to build for him in FBI headquarters. And we want you to go undercover as yourself. For me to do this kind of role for a non-agent, I mean, I had a badge and I had credentials. Um, The only difference between the ghosts and the agents or we don't make arrests and we're typically not armed because it's hard to conduct surveillance when you're armed. But the problem was they couldn't find an agent who who had the combination of knowledge of counterintelligence and spy hunting, which I had from my years on the street as a ghost, and the ability to turn a computer on and understand what was happening. And uh, I just happened to meet both of those qualifications. Because what we were doing is we were putting Hansen in charge of a new section in the FBI that was built just for him. It was called the Information Assurance Security Team. It was built to examine the FBI's computerization efforts, the security behind them, and build information security for the FBI. This was 2000-2001. Today, we would call that cybersecurity. So so follow me here. (laughs) They took the biggest buy in U.S. history the first cyber spy in US history, and put him in charge of building cybersecurity for the FBI. And the only other person he put in the room with him to, to keep him from giving up these secrets and catch him in the act was a 26-year-old ghost who they pulled off the street and threw into a role that I wasn't prepared for and had to learn on the job.
1: Eric O'Neill worked as Robert Hansen's assistant and quickly learned to navigate Hansen's quirky and sometimes volatile personality, in time, O'Neill saw a potential avenue for collecting evidence of Hanson's
2: spying. He kept a Palm pilot. And, and yes, I'm bringing everybody back into technology. <laughs> but the POM pilot, a digital, a personal data assistant, a PDA, one of the original ones. And this was a POM 3. So it was this big clunky thing. And he kept his entire life calendared in that thing. And when I asked him about it, he said, I've written the encryption on this myself. Even these idiots, and these are his words, not mine, that the FBI couldn't crack it on their best day. I mean, wow, come on. So I I looked at him and I said, all right, well, and in my mind, I was thinking, we need to get this away from him. The problem was he kept it in his left back pocket because it was so precious to him. He never pulled it out of his pocket until he slid it in his bag next to his desk and only when he was sitting down. So that's tough. I mean, how do you distract someone and get it away with enough time? So we had to come up with this crazy plan to separate him from the POM Pilot with enough time for a tech team to copy it and allow me to put it back before he knew it was gone. So we had to physically remove it from him in a, using what we call a pretext or in uh, FBI speak some shenanigans to get him away from it, uh, sufficient time for me to get it down, copy it and get it back. So what we did is we used everything we learned about him in the investigation. He has massive, massive narcissism which meant that he had no respect for anyone above him in seniority or in authority. He didn't like to be interrupted, and he really liked to shoot. So we had an assistant director and a special agent named Rich Garcia, who was the only other person on the ninth floor who knew about this investigation. The two of them walk in, right, the, the ADIC, the assistant director was read into the case just for this operation. And they come in unannounced when Hanson was sitting down, that was important, slap $20 on his desk and say, you and us downstairs, rifle range right now, $20, I beat you, right? And he tried to say no and the assistant director said, this is not a request. So he's mad and he walks out after them grumbling with his gun and his uh, ear protection and eye protection and all the stuff you need to go down all the way to the sub-basement and shoot. And for the first time, he breaks his routine and doesn't grab that Palm Pilot. So I was really excited. I get a page saying he's in pocket shooting. So I run to his bag, open all four pockets, they're all identical, pull out the Palm Pilot, and I find a data card and a floppy disk, all that stuff has data, right? Grabbed it all, ran down three flights of steps, handed it off to a tech team using this program called Norton Ghost. So you can mm. literally see the bar going across as they're copying <laughs> this, is this a encrypted memory data. Lane, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like watching the bar, like twenty percent, twenty one percent, and I'm right. dancing can, around can, uh, and I'm so nervous uh, and I'm so stressed out. They throw me out of the room, so now I'm standing in the hall and and I get another page and I look and it says "out of pocket coming to you." Oof. So I, you know, I knocked on the door. I was like very polite. Hey guys, I'm gonna need that the the palm pilot and the floppy disk and the data card i need it now and they're like oh we're almost done don't worry i said you don't understand he's armed and i'm not he's angry i need to be there before him they they got it it took a little while i knew i had about nine minutes if the guy ran he probably wasn't going to run up to the office but he was going to hurry and i got it i ran up three flights of steps i slammed the big door to the skiff behind me which saved me I ran into his office, it was a little separate office, you know, off of my main pit area office. Got to his desk, knelt down before it felt like I won and realized I have three devices, four pockets and no idea which pocket I was supposed to put things into. Total rookie mistake. I sat there trying to figure out how I was going to remember and I was stressed and the more you, the more stressed you get, the worse your recall. And as I'm trying to figure this out, I hear him come through the door.
1: The rest of the story and my complete interview with Eric O'Neill can be heard this Sunday on a Cyberwire special edition. It'll show up in your podcast feed and on our website, thecyberwire.com. And that's The Cyberwire.